0: listeners, and welcome back to reno This is the first episode in a brand new season of the show. I am your host, Connor McWibby. reno is a weekly interview show where I speak with a variety of people doing important work and having significant impacts in our community here in Northern Nevada. My goal for this show is that it's a consistent source of interesting, substantive conversation that is highly relevant to us here in Northern Nevada. This is a community-funded, independent project, and your support is super duper appreciated. I have a handful of new patrons uh, since last season. So thank you so much to Elaine, Claudia, Stephanie, Mike, Remo, Mindy, Jillian, Marina, and everyone else who contributes to the show's existence in any way, even just by listening. If you'd like to learn more about supporting the show, you can visit renoites.com and just telling people about the show letting them know about it, spreading the word also helps a ton. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks for telling your friends about the show, following me on Instagram, all that good stuff. I have a ton of really great guests lined up for this season. And so many of them came directly from listener suggestions. So if you have somebody that you think would be a good guest on the show, please let me know send me an email. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. And also, I will still be at the Riverside Farmer's Market every Sunday, at least through the end of September. So come and visit me at the Farmer's Market. That's at Idlewild Park, Sunday mornings from 8 until 1. Uh, Come by, chat, tell me who you want to hear on the show, let me know what you think. It's a nice way for me to just kind of get to know listeners and share ideas. My first guest on the show over 100 episodes ago was Bob Conrad, founder of This Is Reno, And I've had a few other people from the world of local media on the show over the last couple of years, and those have always been really interesting conversations. I find them really valuable. So I'm excited this season to start with Brian Dugan, the former editor of the Reno Gazette Journal and current general manager at KUNR. We talked a lot about the decline of print newspapers, what it means for local reporting, zombie newsrooms that have no staff and use like AI printed articles, events like COVID that made everyone tune in for local details, like what makes people tune into the local news, the elimination of barriers that anyone can kind of get into journalism, and a lot more stuff. It was really great. I hope that you enjoy this episode and the upcoming season. I have a lot of really great guests, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you again so much for listening. And now, this week's guest on Renoites, Brian Dugan. Brian Dugan from KUNR. Welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Good to have you here. So. You are a longtime fixture in local media here. You were at the Reno Gazette Journal for over a decade, right? Yep. Yep. Let's start with that. So you worked at the RGJ for over a decade uh, as the editor in recent years, last few years of your time there. What drew you to that as a career? You've been working at it for so long.
1: Yeah. I spent about 15 years working in newspapers. My first job out of college, I went to UNR, went to the J school there, graduated in 2008, and that was when everything was crashing. So Mm. my first job out of school was actually at the Bismarck Tribune in North Dakota covering the state house up there. I spent about a year and a half up there just cutting my teeth and made my way back to Nevada and worked at the Nevada Appeal down in Carson City for a couple of years covering business and the state legislature. And then in 2011 came to the Reno Gazette Journal and I've been talking to um, Kelly Scott. She was a longtime editor there and she finally, said that there was an opening to cover city politics, mm. and I jumped at it. And it was just the most insane couple of years of reporting that I ever had in my career. Where you know, it wasn't just covering on the city of Reno and the old America shell Council, but I was thrown into a lot of really intense, breaking news situations. Mm. Where I think the month I got there is June 2011, there was an Amtrak. Crash! a semi-truck crashed into it just outside of town, east of here. Then I was sent to go cover Burning Man Mm. for a week. And then literally the day after I got back, the IHOP shooting happened down in Carson City where a schizophrenic man, which we later found out, took a... uh, Uh, augmented rifle that he turned into an automatic rifle and sprayed bullets inside the IHOP and killed four people. Three of them were uniformed National Guardsmen and a woman there eating breakfast with her husband. Mm -hmm. And um, I was the first reporter on scene for that. It was just in my early twenties, mid twenties, and suddenly just thrust into these national breaking news situations Mm -hmm. and doing interviews with Fox News and the BBC. And then like two weeks later after that, we had the uh, national Air Race crash that September Again, one of the first reporters on scene with our team from the RGJ. And again, just this whirlwind of national coverage. I think it was on NPR Mm -hmm. after that. It's just these very traumatic events for our city. And it's kind of surreal to think back just reporting on it.
0: Yeah, Do you think that's like an important part of the national news is having local reporters who are the people from that place, who have a connection to the place? Absolutely.
1: When we talk about the journalistic ecosystem in our country, we've seen a lot of atrophying at the local level. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of national outlets that are doing just fine financially. For newspapers, the New York Times is probably doing as Good as it ever has in its entire history right now hmm. the wall street journal is still strong the washington post to one extent or another is strong and then you look at the most watched news tv networks fox news these are all national brands that are doing quite well financially but when you look at the local level you peel it back you look at newspapers like the reno gazette journal or any other kind of major or mid-sized metro paper It has been a very difficult 15 to 20 years for these organizations and longtime institutions. The RGJ turned 150 a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. And it's been really hard to see what's happened to the industry. So when you ask, you know, when these big events happen, national outlets tend to really rely on that local reporter to... Mm provide context. And now in my role at KUNR in public radio, NPR often looks to the local station for additional context or reporting on politics or breaking news situations.
0: Yeah, I know that like the NPR format on, on Knr it's like a mix of national NPR programming and then local programming that's in the NPR style. So they integrate that way. Yeah. Yeah. Why is this hitting local journalism? so hard compared to national like is it a demand issue do people just want national news or do they want the familiarity of a national brand that they get their news from what do you think is driving this shift over the last 10-15 years from local media the money coming to local media that money going to national media instead
1: yeah i think it's a uh, undercovered topic nationally that I don't think a lot of people really have awareness of and I think increasingly you're seeing a lot of national philanthropic causes kind of like oh wow like local journalism has really taken a dramatic hit in in recent years and the number of journalists working in communities around the country has has been decimated very dramatically over the last 15 years I don't have off the top of my head But, I mean, there's probably fewer than half the journalists working today than there were back in the mid-2000s, for Mm. example, in in local communities. And that's largely because of the decline of local newspapers when having this kind of conversation with people. I'll reference this Pew poll that came out a couple of years ago, and it asked people, do you think your local newspaper is doing well financially? And over 70% of the respondents thought, yes, the answer Mm. is yes. But by and large, the answer is no. Right. And especially in the local newspaper industry, what you've seen over the last 15 years has been this the sort of systematic decline in advertising revenue because of the shift to digital media. Mm. And unfortunately, digital advertising just simply does not match the same rates as print advertising. There's a saying in the industry, print dollars for digital dimes. And then subscriptions also. So at the Reno Gazette Journal at our peak, we had around... I don't know, 65,000 subscribers at some point uh, about 20 years ago. And today, it's uh, a fraction of that. It's like maybe a sixth of that now. And, and that's just because of reading habits have shifted. I don't, when's the last time you picked up an actual print newspaper? And been a while. It's, it's, yeah, and the last time I did was at my folks house because mm. they're the key demographic for the print readership. Yeah. And so unfortunately, digital subs, people who are mostly reading content on their iPad or on their mobile device, there's just a lot of churn in the industry. So it's very easy to start a subscription for very low. Hmm. And then and then it's easy to get out of it when the price goes up. So yeah. I think we all have that mentality. And if you look at print subscribers here in Reno, and this is probably relatively true across most markets, print subscribers are spending anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks a month, depending on where they are in the market. And I think the average digital sub maybe like brings in five to $10 a month. Just kind of look at it in the broader aggregate. Over time, this has just really affected the newspaper industry in particular. All that said, mm-hmm. local newspapers used to have a monopoly. If you wanted to advertise in this town, you had to go to the local paper. Mm-hmm. Or if you wanted to sell your bike or whatever, you had to go take out a classified in the paper. Of course, that economy and that market is now dead. Right. A lot of people would say, for good too. It's better that there's been more competition for advertising that started with Craigslist mm-hmm. and then... Facebook marketplace or whatever, even like the advent of podcasting and all these different fragmented media, it's meant really good things for democracy too, because Mm. there's more voices. There's a lower bar of entry to get into publishing and reaching an audience. Exactly what you're doing. And that's really cool. And the problem with the kind of the old legacy media is the economics just stopped working at this, at the local scale. Mm. So the New York times can make it work because they're international in scale. And there's been some really interesting think pieces and podcasts about how has the New York Times done so well. They're not really a newspaper company anymore. They're a technology company. So the way to think about the New York Times is they do games, they do Wirecutter, which is a fantastic consumer reports type product. Yeah. Uh, they have a great cooking app that's known for their recipes and videos. It's kind of like this sort of like lifestyle brand that they've, I, I've heard it likened to, they want to have your attention from the moment you wake up with the news to the moment you go to sleep, maybe with a puzzle or something. Yeah, doing Wordle in bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, local media, just th- th- there's just not the money or the scale to actually make that work. Right. You know, we could talk about the questionable, generously putting, you know, decisions that have been made by various newspaper companies, including my former employer, Mm -hmm. you know, with Gannett. Been a lot of short-sightedness, a retreat from the public service mission of journalism, I would argue, especially at that large corporate scale where you've seen companies pull out of smaller markets left and right. The LA Times had a pretty damning piece earlier this year about One Gannett paper, it was the Daily Californian, I believe, in Salinas, California. It's a newspaper with literally no journalists working for it. Hmm. And so the LA Times did the story about it. And here's this town of, you know, 100 to 200,000 people, I believe, with no journalists.
0: And are they just getting like AP syndicated articles in their paper and no, it's not actually a local paper?
1: Essentially, yes.
0: Yeah. Is that part of the way that New York Times manages to exist is that it is a national newspaper? It's called the New York Times, but it is not like New York's local newspaper. It is the national newspaper, effectively. So it's the print version of something like a Fox News or an MSNBC or whatever, like a national news, but just the print format? The way I would, definitely different formats than even compared to like, you know, cable
1: news format where cable news is programming around a clock and they're trying to Keep, I think it's more about the attention economy, which I know the, the New York Times needs, but I would argue the New York Times or papers like that, and I would throw the Wall Street Journal into that bucket and the Washington Post, where they are trying to, in, in the classical sense of what journalism does, is affect the national conversation mm. and directly influence politics. That's the strength of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post, where they can... Publish these blockbuster investigations into the former president's taxes and all the things he didn't pay. Or you would go back in history with the Pentagon Papers or, you know, any, you know, major national revelation about scandals Mm -hmm. in federal government or even state government, local government, like the big papers, like the New York Times or LA Times, the Houston Chronicle, like these large metro dailies, that's been their main power. Mm -hmm. Um, where I would argue like the Fox Newses and the CNN's and the MSNBC's of the world are more about maintaining like the political zeitgeist, you know, where they're just a bunch of talking heads, but it's like they're perpetuating a narrative based mm-hmm. on a particular point of view.
0: Yeah, like there's, I, I don't think of any cable news as being particularly investigative, right? Yeah. It's a lot of takes and a lot of analysis and those kind of things about the news, but they're not the ones, as far as I can tell, that are doing investigation, kind of finding the stories and kind of like doing that work. What about local? So is there is there a demand for local journalism around these things like uh, politics and uh, the the same types of issues that seem to draw eyes on the national level? Do those just not draw as many eyes here locally? Or why doesn't that model or that kind of approach work as well locally? Is it that we just don't have the reporters to do it? Is that there's not as much going on? I mean, there's not as much scandal here in Reno, I don't think, as there is (laughs) in our national politics. I don't know. Maybe there is. We don't know what we don't know, right? Right. So you need
1: journalists to find out. Um, To your initial question about, is there demand for local journalism? And I would say unequivocally, yes. We see it time and time again with how the audience behaved around major investigative pieces locally that were done locally. People respond to it. People pay attention. People read it. They want to know what's happening within their local institutions. The disconnect, I think, is the fundamental economics of local journalism. That, And I think it's a problem of awareness. On some level that people just don't understand what's happened on a kind of a gut base level where oftentimes we'd see in the comments when I was at the paper, like, why is this behind a paywall? They should just sell ads around it and make money off that and pay for the journalists that way. Mm-hmm. And we'd all be there saying that's not yes, but that's not going to pay enough to make it actually work and pay someone a living wage mm-hmm. and then pay enough journalists to do the actual work necessary to have a kind of a material effect on our local conversation, right? Like mm-hmm. you need several journalists to do the work in a city this size to cover local politics, like both cities, the county, mm-hmm. the school district. But also when I got there, we had about 50 journalists in that newsroom. And we had a, an environmental reporter who would go cover the flood board. I don't know the last time a journalist in this town has actually been at mm-hmm. the regional board to cover that, which concerns me because I know there was a lot of major money spent at that place over the last decade. But mm-hmm. The eyeballs just were the journalists sitting there in the room, listening, and diligently taking notes and trying to understand the context and bring that knowledge and context to their readers. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. And so I think, like I said, I think it's a matter of awareness. And I think what we're in right now, I would argue, is a transitional period. You know, on this Reno, like this biggest little scale, we've had our own version of this fragmentation. And we have outlets like This is Reno or the resurgence of the r or... Mm-hmm. Uh, The Nevada Independent, and at KUNR Public Radio, we've been investing in our newsroom as well. And there's an active conversation in the public media sphere that public radio should be a replacement for what's been lost from the corporate capitalistic side of journalism, and that we're bringing this back to a nonprofit model, Mm. or perhaps starting that conversation for the first time in some communities that nonprofit journalism might be the answer or the best answer for local journalism going forward. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen that model work quite well. Again, with the Nevada Independent is a great statewide model. And they've put reporters in Reno and Carson City and Las Vegas. And in some of the rules with the KUNR, we just hired a broadcast journalist to go be the first journalist that we've had out there in, in Elko and she'll be starting this fall. And that's through, because we're a nonprofit, we're affiliated with the university system, we're able to use grant money and other means of fundraising that a traditional kind of for-profit journalistic outlet couldn't do. I think there's a lot of promise with this. It's just a matter of, again, spreading awareness of the problem and the need for people to support journalism as a local institution and cause.
0: Yeah, you mentioned earlier the easier entry into journalism right like with digital it is you can anyone can start a podcast anyone can start a blog and that's relatively new like you said it used to be kind of a monopoly and now there are very few barriers but then there's also no quality control on those things too do you see any kind of challenge with that of when you open the gates entirely to whoever wants to call themselves a reporter can be out there so we also have local call it media or whatever you want to that is, I would say, not necessarily reliable or helpful or good for the the local discourse. What about that? Is there a problem with when you start to diversify and break these newsrooms into a million different entities that you open the door to bad actors here on the local scale?
1: Um, I mean, no, I, I guess like the short answer is no, I don't think it's a bad thing. Hmm. The long answer would be like for ex- what you're doing with with your podcast is a form of journalism, mm-hmm. and I, I don't believe you went to J school, but you're certainly conducting an act of journalism by conducting an interview with people of, you know, mm-hmm. with the various perspectives around this town, and you're you're providing a service for people. So no, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, and I you know to your point about well when it gets so fragmented and the barn doors are open for anyone to do it, despite their ability to even. Publish things that are based in reality. We can go down that rabbit hole, but I think if you look at the history of journalism in this country, the last fifty years of like the big newspaper, the you know successful money making local newspaper type model, where the old publisher of the RGJ when he was still the Reno Evening Gazette and the, the Nevada State Journal, you know, he would joke that like they had like a fifty percent profit margin back in the seventies, and if he'd tell me that, I'd be like, wow, like that is. Fascinating. That does Mm -hmm. not exist anymore. That's also a way to look at it as just an anomaly too, that if you look at the history of journalism in this country, more often than not, these were smaller pamphlet size Mm -hmm. type publications. If you go back to the revolution time or back to the early days of the country, it was the partisan press and you had – Federalist type papers, or the I'm getting all my the Democratic Republicans, whatever the parties they were calling Thomas Jefferson names or Mm -hmm. calling John Adams names, you know, like that was the style of journalism where it wasn't even based in truth. And you saw during the 20th century, like the professionalization of journalism, where kind of the rise of the J School, like the Reynolds School of Journalism at UNR, who's now you know I I work under, that started about 100 years ago, or actually 100 years ago last year. (laughs) And it took a long time for the profession of journalism to create this sense of standard, right, where at KUNR or the RTJ or most other kind of outlets that purport to be professional in nature, they tend to abide by things like the AP style the Associated Press style of writing, where there's certain like ways of writing state names or mm-hmm. standards for when to publish names or not publish names, or the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics. One of the key tenets there is to minimize harm, for example, or just some of the uh, idioms in, in journalism. A common phrase is, if your mom tells you she loves you, check it out. Like that's <laughs> like, you know, and like that's of like the culture of journalism to come through like this the academies and what sort of made these professional journalists. And I think the culture of journalism, I think, has seeped into our kind of national identity in some ways, that people have an idea of what media should be. And people are now trying to do that in their own way. And I think it's a really exciting time in media where you see, again, where you have, we're just sitting here in your apartment conducting a really great interview and you know you don't need a professional studio right you know i mean this can be done on the fly so to speak to the question about is it bad will we like the rise of misinformation and conspiracy theories and how that's affected our politics and i agree that is a big problem but i also get the sense that over time as major events happen credibility at the end of the day still matters Mm -hmm. so if someone says one thing but consistently reality proves otherwise over time people will get a sense of the thing that this person keeps saying does not come true but the other outlets over here are reporting something that does resemble reality yeah and i think over time like that arc history bends toward justice type mentality i do think it does bend toward truth and i do think people over time find the outlets that actually do say something that's real. Mm -hmm. And we saw this during the pandemic where we saw our audience like quadruple, like overnight because people who didn't typically go to local journalistic outlets to see what's going on Mm -hmm. suddenly realized, wow, my life is being dramatically affected by major policy changes at the state government level Mm -hmm. and the local government level and the federal government level that I can't go to work anymore. My work is shut down. Mm -hmm. I have to wear a mask. I have to get vaccinated. You know, all these things were happening And people were going to sources that they deemed as well Mm -hmm. as probably credible. And so I think at the end of the day, if, you know, what our reality is now is this sort of fragmented marketplace, I I still think the most valuable currency in it is always going to be credibility. Yeah. And that's that's earned.
0: Yeah, I think the credibility thing is an important part, I think, because for myself, I always try to shy away from journalists as a label or as a descriptor because of those expectations and norms of professional journalists. And it feels strange to be in that in-between place where I am doing something you could call journalism that is very locally oriented. It is about what's happening in Reno. But I'm uncomfortable with the idea of claiming to be an authority on anything or, you know, a professional at anything. And That is why I try to focus on just authenticity, I guess, even if it's not steered towards what you're supposed to do as a journalist or the, I don't know the rules, I guess, because I didn't go to journalism school. But yeah, credibility, I think is, at least for a project like mine, one of the most important things. I want people to be able to listen to it, being like, oh, this guy is legitimately interested in these topics and just sharing them with people. And there's not a spin or a, like a, an agenda to it, I guess. And I think that's another part of the media that can be frustrating to people is this difference between reporting of the news and opinion and uh, political agenda stuff. And our news has become so politically driven and polarized. Did you see that happen over the time at the RGJ too? Like, how does that shift from News to opinion, which we saw hugely in television, right? Like that complete change in television news that way. Did you see that in the newspaper too? And did that kind of affect you think how newspapers have gone? That's a really interesting question. I think I do take the criticism, you know,
1: seriously too that, you know, well, journalism is very liberal, like your newspapers are liberal or you're uh, pro this party or anti that party. And I don't think that's true. I think in practice, that's not true. Just knowing what I know. Mm. But that doesn't tell people much because they don't know what I know. They haven't seen what I've seen. They don't work with the people who I worked with. All they see are the headlines and the photos and the placement and occasional mistakes and things like that that inevitably happen in journalism. And so over time, this sort of distrust of media, it, it shows in polls, too. Again, a Pew or I think it's Gallup. The trust in institutions, the media pulls down with Congress and lawyers, like Mm. no don't trust the media, right? Right. Um, But, you know, that's that's also increasingly true for all institutions, unfortunately. Mm. So you've seen this sort of overarching, you know, flood of distrust for all institutions in the last generation or so, which whole nother conversation. Yeah. But as far as like bias or objectivity or how people perceive what we did at the RGJ, for example, I think the force that had the most impact on our practice as journalists over time was the shift toward the thinking of the digital audience as something that could be both measured and then manipulated. Hmm. And I think that has done more... To affect how journalism operates today than anything else. It's not so much a political agenda as it is a concerted effort in the interest of building audience and then financial gain.
0: Yeah, is it just like the optimization is the thing where instead of focusing on the quality of the thing, you start looking at the numbers, and you're like, okay, this is what works. So we're leaning into that whether it's good or not. I think quality still
1: matters in that argument. And I still think it's true that people recognize good journalism versus like clickbait. I think people inherently know like when something has been well reported or it's well written. But I certainly think as an industry, journalism has shifted toward this Idea that we need to really understand the audience and then try to do journalism in a way that will maximize said audience. I don't think that was always the best way of of doing things, and it it resulted in some very less than stellar stories that I know we did at the RGJ. I have a former colleague who. We'll go a name, but we've laughed and joked about it in the years since about we had to do a series of listicles at the RGj because it came on down from on high that mm. we needed to boost the page views because we weren't going to hit goal mm. And so we like okay, we'll do some listicles because people love listicles. Meaning like the top, like the five most whatever. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and as a as a protest, my colleague did a uh, the top five STDs circulating in Washoe County. <laughs> and, um, and it was spying. And ironically, it actually did pretty well with the audience, but that's not yeah. like the kind of journalism that you want to do. Like the stuff that we really strived for and the stuff that I'm most proud of are in-depth investigations into the surge of inmate deaths at the Washoe County Jail or who was using the most water in this town during a really severe drought in 2015. And it's th- these stories that people still talk about. That's what I think resonates the most over time. Now, can we all be seen as completely objective and completely in line with everyone's perspective of what we should be producing? No, I don't think that's possible Mm -hmm. either. And I think there's always going to be healthy debate around whether or not a story is slanted or a headline didn't get it quite right, or those are all really fair criticisms. And it's difficult to really make everyone happy. We can get as, as, as close as we can to the truth, I I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think the best standard we can have as journalists is just to be as fair as possible. And Mm -hmm. I suppose that's the best we can do. Yeah.
0: I know you used to write a newsletter. I don't know if that was supposed to be lighthearted and more fun. And part of the appeal was that it's for like for younger readers. You mentioned that newspaper subscribers, that is a much older demographic. And a lot of young people get their news from, you can't really call it news. They learn about what's going on in the world through the filter of social media, through TikTok, through Twitter, those kind of things. But obviously there's an interest in getting younger people to not only consume what we'll call it real news, but to have an interest in it and for that to help our society be better because we have a young community that knows what's actually going on in the world and is and is media literate, I think is another part too of understanding what is reliable and what's not. And I think we've maybe lost some of that as a society, that skill of determining what to trust and whatnot. Can you just talk about that? How do we appeal to young people? They're not likely to subscribe to the old school newspaper. They're already in the depths of the social media news, quote unquote, news ecosystem. So do you have ideas of how we can be more inclusive of all different ages and all different types of people in this kind of news conversation? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And this is a this is the age-old conversation in
1: any kind of media, especially journalism, is how do you get the kids to pay attention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, especially what we're doing at KUNR, where the intent of our journalism at KUNR is to do public service. And we want to provide information for our listening audience and our readers online for free. And we want to do journalism that is ethical, that is fair, that is relevant. And I think when we tell people that mission, people over time start to see it and understand it. Now, we have to get in front of people. It with different platforms, right? So we need to be relevant on social media. We need to be attending events in town, a diversity of events, and actively engaging with people and telling them our story about why local journalism is important. Part of journalism's legacy, unfortunately, is it often came from a heterosexual white male perspective, mm-hmm. frankly. And that was who ran the media for most of its history. And up until recently where you've increasingly seen a more diverse leadership come into power in in, in just very recent years. Part of that is actively engaging with communities in ways that we just historically did not. And for us here in Reno at KUNR, we are actively producing more bilingual journalism. Half of our newsroom is bilingual in Spanish. We intend to start doing a Spanish language only broadcast later this year on air. That's never happened before. We want to try to reach a more diverse audience through what we're capable of publishing and airing and broadcasting and, and writing. We have a, a WhatsApp newsletter called Tuvas hmm. that we send out directly to people's phones. It has all of our headlines and links, and it's all done in Spanish. And oh. it's meant to be, again, a, a public service for a audience that just frankly, was has been underserved. We used to have a couple of Spanish-language newspapers in this town, and really, the uh, Spanish-language coverage has just declined over time because it's also faced similar market pressures. We're trying to bring some of that back. Mm-hmm. Um, the same can be said, though, for rural coverage, too. I mean, we, we've seen a lot of newspapers in Nevada that around the country close because of the economics of newspapers. We've seen some green shoots in, in, in that area. In Fallon, there's a, a local paper out there that's doing quite well. I forget the publisher's name right now off the top of my head, but she is doing some really great work because it's an intensely local product. Mm-hmm. We're trying to bring back reporting in Elko that's seen the decline of the Elko Daily Free Press out there. Unfortunately, we're trying to bring back some uh, journalistic heft out there. And, and this is all being done through like a variety of funding sources, grants, fundraising, it's going to take a big ecosystem of support here to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think over time, people, once they're out of the early 20s, once they start getting established in jobs or commutes, or they start having children, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as life happens, so to speak, the institutions and stories about those institutions start to matter a bit more, because that's when people tend to start paying attention to local news, Mm -hmm. because their lives are now affected. You know, yeah. Yeah. Lives. I mean,
0: their lives are affected their entire lives, but they start to realize, I think at some point, how much what's happening locally affects them and that they should be paying more attention to it. Yeah.
1: And part of it too is just general civic education. I think there there could be a lot more education discussion around information literacy, media literacy, how to be vigilant with online information, how to source things, how to identify potential conspiracy theories online. And, you know, I mean, there's some uh, very interesting national groups that are trying to spread that kind of awareness. And I know there's a lot of teachers in our school district who often bring in journalists to talk about this very topic. And I, I don't think there's a systematic approach to that yet, but I think increasingly there's an awareness that, yeah, we probably need to have a deeper conversation about The media, which is not just the newspapers and big fancy TV stations, Mm -hmm. but every single blog and social media account out there is part of this monolithic media that everyone's now consuming.
0: It's encouraging to hear you say that about the Fallon newspaper doing well because it is so highly localized, because that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this project with Renoites is have a highly local interview Show because that was one thing that I really enjoy is like the hour long interview format, and that does not exist very much in the local markets, as far as I can tell. Depending on the city size, maybe there are. I know that CityCast in Las Vegas is also moving into, and not just in Las Vegas, CityCast has several cities around the country, they use the same format, and it's a daily news show that is specific to the area. So the local is the focus. And I think that being a kind of a competitive advantage over national news of being so specifically local that people know that's the place to go to for what's happening in your own backyard is pretty valuable. So I'm glad to hear that that, that works. And the different funding model stuff, I, that's a whole nother conversation. But one of the things that I'm trying to do is have less reliance on advertising because the independence of a project I think matters to a lot of people. And the test is will people pay? For local media and I think we're still kind of learning whether they will or not right do you have a a, a patreon or something yeah I have a patreon I have a handful of patreon supporters so that is my hope is that as I continue to do this project and prove its value over time that I can also prove that in a city the size of Reno that there is some financial viability it's definitely not there yet but my hope is I'm just I'm an optimistic person and I like to think that there are enough people in Reno that if there's something that is of value to the local community, enough people will pay for it to sustain. And that's been a really interesting project to see what that looks like um, you know, on the ground. So it's been uh, interesting stuff.
1: It's been really fun to watch your podcast grow. And over time, you've gotten some really great interviews over the last few years. And I really think you got something special here. I'm rooting for you. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I've been blown away by the the level, the quality of guests that I've had on the show. And I think it does speak to the the vacuum that was there before i think that people want to talk about what they're doing they want to talk about what's important to them and being able to sit down and do that for an hour is something that they don't really get an opportunity for that often they're quoted one line in the news or they're on tv for a three-minute segment but being able to expand on what you're doing and why it matters to you for a local person who is highly visible in the local community i think there's real value for the guests too which I think is the reason that it's not that hard to get people to come on the show. Just got to ask, right? There needs to be something there for them and the opportunity to do a type of media that they don't really have an option of most of the time I think has been pretty beneficial for them. What's the Nevada News Alliance? I know that's another thing that you're involved in. It's that like a connection of the various local news organizations? What does that look like? How does it work? Yeah, that was a a project
1: that I started with a couple of professors, now retired Donica Mensing and current professor Patrick File over at the Reynolds School of Journalism. And the idea was local media should talk to each other. Hmm. Basically, we should collaborate, we should find a common space where we can at least discuss the challenges and hopes and dreams of what we're doing. And it started off as sort of an informal, let's just have some mixers. Let's have some, maybe some forms. This started right before the pandemic. We did a few events. We had some funding. It took a hiatus. And it's still on a hiatus right now. We just need to reinvigorate it. I think the uh, J School dedicated a couple of interns to it to help out with it about two-ish years ago. And we had some really good events around conversations about local media. And the idea at the time, and still is what we're doing right now, which is just Education about local journalism. Mm. What's going on? And there's several different again models in this town that that are affected. I would argue you would be a good candidate (laughs) for joining. We had double scoop and this is Reno and the Nevada Independent, the RGJ, KUNR. We were all talking and
0: and that's basically it. It's just keeping the conversation going. Yeah. So you're at KUNR now for the last year or so, Mm -hmm. after a long time in print. I know that there is also digital, there is other forms than audio through KUNR, but it's largely an audio platform. Can you talk a little bit about going from print to audio? If you think audio is a better way to reach people or a different way to reach people? Kind of what's your thoughts on audio journalism broadly? Oh, I, I'm a longtime
1: NPR fan. So I I don't know how long it's probably started with wait, wait, and then I got sucked in. And so I think I knew the programming schedule on the back of my hand on my first day. It's definitely a different medium, a different way to approach the news. In broadcast, of course, it's shorter because mm-hmm. at KUMR we're a newscast format. So we have, if you're not familiar with uh, KUMR, eighty-eight point seven or it, ninety-one point seven Verdi. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: that's that would be great if you can just tell people who don't listen to sure, a, yeah. NPR. Like, what is it? What is a typical like couple hours listening to NPR? Yeah, like? Sure.
1: So um, we are a public radio station, which is it's a legal designation that started back in the '60s and what we're able to do is become NPR member stations through this. So national public radio member station, we fundraise is a, a key tenant of public radio. So our the most of our support and more than half comes from members or our donors. So mm-hmm. this is our listeners basically. And we have a few thousand of them who give to us very generously every year, sometimes monthly to help sustain us. Then we get sponsorships from businesses or grants and we have, uh, since we are a university licensee, so KUNR started 60 years ago this October on the campus of UNR. It was an educational mission at the time so that when the Public Radio Act started back in the 60s, eventually KUNR fell into this. Uh, we we became an NPR member station in 1981. National public radio programming is things like Morning Edition, All Things Considered, or Fresh Air. Other distributors are like American Public Media, which does Marketplace. Mm -hmm. Uh, We get The Daily from The New York Times. We uh, run that at 6.30 p.m. on weekdays. Lighter shows like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is kind of a humorous news quiz show that runs on the weekends in the morning. There's just a variety of these types of programming. We also have KNCJ, which is classical music and jazz music, and we also have KNCC out in Elko. So we have three stations, and we reach people. We have ways of broadcasting our signal to people from Susanville, California, all the way through Reno and Carson City, all the way down to Bishop, California. So the Eastern Sierra, and then we go along the 80 corridor all the way out to Elko. And then we have a small signal down on the campus of UNLV. and It's on an HD channel, which is a subchannel of KUNV down there in, in Las Vegas. But Public radio is meant to be a public service. We're meant to provide news, information, cultural content, music, all for free. And it's meant to be done in this very professionalized manner so that we have standards and ethics in the way that we present this information. NPR is a a well-known national news producer that has reporters around the country and the world. Some of their you know, Stephen Skeep and Michelle Martin. And I mean, like there's tons of these big names that have been producing news for years and years that we get to broadcast here in Reno. Mm. And so KUNR, we, again, depend on the generosity, really, of our local community to keep this signal going. We're about a $2 million a year outfit. We have 16 full-time employees and several other part-timers. And it's a this is a group of people who are dedicated to the mission of public service journalism. Mm-hmm. And um. So for me, going from print to radio, I'm not really on the air. I'm in the background as the general manager, working on largely the administration of the station and fundraising or doing things like this and just yeah. telling her story publicly. So we have a really great team of people who, some names like Dana O'Connor, she's been there about 25 years, and she's currently our All Things Considered host. So that means that's our afternoon newscast from 3.30 to 6.00. 30 or 6 p.m. for all things considered. So she'll break in at the top of the hour and at the bottom of the hour with newscasts. And so that's where our team of five local reporters are producing things like features or shorter news hits. We have people like Lucia Starbuck who does politics for us. We have Caleb Radel who does more environmental work for us. We have Maria Palma who does our Latino and tribal coverage for us. So we have this kind of smattering of reporters who are Producing these audio spots that we run throughout the day and again all thanks to the generosity of our community for the last 60 years
0: Yeah for audio in particular I think that people get their media in different ways and I really appreciate I mean the reason I do a podcast is I like to be able to do other things while I'm listening to the news That's why radio that's I think that's why broadcast radio in cars has been such a foundational part of where we get our news less so now that we all have Spotify and music and all of that but yeah, just audio as a way of getting the news, I think, also has a different feel to it because you have a person's voice. You have, instead of just quoting a person in the paper and reading their words, you're hearing them actually say things for themselves. Do you think that audio, whether it's broadcast or podcast, whatever, has some benefits in that, that it's maybe a little more more human, more genuine than oh. than anything you can get from print? Yeah, I think it's definitely a
1: medium where you have a more personalized relationship with the story. We have something called driveway moments in public radio, where there'll be a story that is audio rich and you hear the environment. You have a really compelling story, but you can also hear the person's inflection, like the way that they tell the story. You don't get that in print. You can read a really great story and be moved by it, but there's a different effect of hearing someone's voice hearing someone recount a compelling story. I mean, the uh, Daily on Monday, they had an interview with one of the survivors from Maui. And it was just about 30 minutes of him just walking through his day that turned into a hellscape and how he survived. And it's just, it's the most compelling audio that you just can't peel yourself away from it because it's just so gripping. Mm -hmm. And I think audio does have that 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 quality to it that you don't get from reading the printed word. I'm still, I, I will always be an ink-stained wretch, right? I, I will always, uh, you know, probably identify as a writer for the rest of my life. But I, I really love the broadcast medium. Our team here at ku they're often spending a lot of time trying to get ambi, like the natural sound mm. of, of a story. We had a feature this morning, from Lucia Starbuck again, she did a, a story about the roller derby team down in Carson City. Oh. And if you listen to that story, she, she starts off with just the environmental sounds of what a roller derby team sounds like, mm-hmm. the screeching wheels and the brakes, the uh, the people getting hit and kind of rustling around each other. That kind of sound you can't get in any other kind of medium because it is this kind of intimate, it's in your mind, mm-hmm. right? It's not, and it's not like TV either, where, of course, that's very visual forward. With audio, again, like you could be preparing dinner or getting ready in the morning or just driving your car and be taking in a story and be able to just kind of live there in in your mind. And I think that's why a lot of people really appreciate the podcast format or, again, radio format where it's this – it's in your home, but it doesn't feel too intrusive, too. Mm -hmm. But it's also something that is compelling, and that's why I personally enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Um, what are you hoping to do at k So you've been there for about a year. Are mm-hmm. there plans, changes? What do you want your yeah. fingerprints to look like on it?
1: What It's been a year of rebuilding. We had to get things up and running again. The pandemic was tough on, on everyone. So we brought in some new hires. So we have a new news editor with Vicky Adame. We brought in a new Morning Edition host with Mark Garber. We filled out our news team and we filled out our business side of the operations. So um, we we have a team of people who are working on fundraising, on grant management, on underwriting, that there's just several teams of people doing all they can to keep the ship going. And my hope and my plan for this station is to show that public radio can be a go-to source for local journalism. And KUMR's news team is relatively... New relative to the rest of the media landscape here in Reno. Hmm. You know, if you look at the newspaper being 150 years old and KUNR being 60 years old, the news team really has only existed for the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years hmm. at KUNR. And it started off with a couple of people, and now we have a news editor, five reporters, a digital editor. We have several, we have roughly four interns each semester that are paid for through donations and endowments. So we've built up our reporting heft. And what I would like, and I think this is a hope, broadly speaking, in the public radio or the public media sphere nationally, when I hear from my colleagues at other stations and at NPR, that public radio and public media can be a replacement for what's been lost in the decline of newspapers. Mm. And the uh, nonprofit model, I think, is far more attractive, especially to younger audiences, who are, I think, rightfully skeptical of what kind of vested interest might be purporting a particular story. Mm -hmm. And I think the story that we can tell as public media is, it's paid for by you, the listener. That's who is paying for our salaries and paying Mm -hmm. for our ability to broadcast every single day. And so I I think it's telling that story and trying to spread the word that there can be a future for local journalism and there can be a very bright one that is based in public service and not based in the the rush to maximize or optimize audience. Mm. That it can be done in a more humanistic and public service mindset that... Frankly, I think is far more refreshing than yeah. um many of the problems and challenges I had to face in my previous life as a print journalist. Mm-hmm. So
0: Yeah. You mentioned Lucia Starbuck and I know she just did a purple politics and that was a podcast as mm-hmm. well. And I'm always interested in this shift from having to be at the place to watch the thing. Broadcast TV, broadcast radio, you listen while it's on or you miss it. And now I think we have a world with streaming music. So you're not listening to the radio, you're listening, you're streaming Spotify. And the reason I do a podcast and one thing I really like about it is that it kind of lives forever and it can reach people at a later time at a different place. It has that kind of flexibility. How does that intertwine with KUNR? Do you have programming that is both podcast and on the radio? And do you see this kind of shift away from you need to be there right now. This like ability to time shift content as something that is also valuable or important or something that you factor into the way you're you're growing KUNR. <laughs> yes, yes to all the above, and I think.
1: So to to take the example that you just said about Purple Politics Nevada with Lucia Starbucks, so that's the the name of the podcast. Yeah, that that was a weekly show that we did during the legislature. We're taking a summer hiatus. It's coming back this fall as we kind of ramp up for the upcoming election. Mm -hmm. We also had a live event tied to that podcast called Pints and Purple Politics where Lucia would do a hour-long show. Usually we had a partnership with Embai Brewery where mm. Matt would let us come into his brewery and we would have about hundred people show up and, oh, nice. and we'd interview state lawmakers or other journalists or so the, our last show at the Reno little theater had the secretary of state and the state treasurer on mm. from the state of Nevada and Lucia got to do kind of a debrief on the uh, session. And so, yeah, this model of it's not just a podcast. It's not just a radio show. It's also a live event. It's mm. also a social media presence. You have to be where the audience is. You have to, understand the uh, listening habits of our fans. And so, yes, we need to be present when people want to hear it. You know, you you can also listen to KUNR on any streaming device. You can tell Alexa or your Apple Music to play KUNR public radio and it'll pull us right up. Mm -hmm. Those are all ways that we're reaching people constantly. And so, yes, like all media, it's gotten more complicated, but that's because our consumption habits as media consumers has shifted pretty dramatically over the last decade, right? Mm -hmm. Where the rise of the smartphone and the smart speaker and all of these things present challenges, but also opportunities for legacy outlets like KUVNR to say, Hey,
0: we're also there too. And here's how you, and here's how you listen. Yeah. For people who want to be more actively engaged in what's happening, whether they're maybe they don't have the time and energy and insanity to start a local podcast like me, (laughs) but they (laughs) want to participate more. They want to engage, right? What's the best way for people to do that? To not just be like a passive consumer of local media, but to, I guess, shape how our city grows and changes through media. I mean, You can leave comments on articles on Facebook, but I don't know that that's going to really reach the people that it needs to reach. How can people engage with local media in a way that's helpful and healthy? I think
1: the first step is just to take an interest in your community about what's going on in it and then try to learn about it. Mm -hmm. So however it impacts you, I mean, say if you're a young 20 something, single, no kids yet, just new here to Reno, maybe you're, you're trying to get involved in local groups or Maybe you have fun on Wednesdays and you do the Wednesday night bike ride or something like that. Mm -hmm. Cycling is actually a political issue in town and getting educated about how the city council has addressed cycling routes. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are writing about that. And so I think as a consumer, or not just a consumer, but a member of a community, really, you should become more and more aware of what is available to you in order to become an educated citizen so that when you vote or when you discuss topics with neighbors and friends, or if you feel compelled enough to show up to meetings or write letters to local lawmakers or whatever, getting involved as much as you see fit, I think the key always comes down to being just, you got to be an active member of your community on some level. Like you have to understand the local issues. And the only way to do that is to explore what's out there. I know that's hard because it is fragmented. So like the Barber brief, for example, Alicia Barber, a longtime historian in town and public policy wonk. She, she writes these great, really detailed articles on her substack mm-hmm. about the planning commission or various city council issues that I I love reading her stuff because it's always really well-informed. And it keeps me up to date on the more nuanced decisions that are happening over in a city hall. But it's also understanding that Even watching like local newscasts, for example, or you know, listen to KUNR in the morning, flip it on, see what's the big news of the day. There's plenty of ways to keep abreast of what's happening here in town. It's just you have to take an active interest in it. So I think that would be the first piece of advice: is just take an active interest in your neighborhood, in Mm -hmm. in your neighbors, what's going on in your city. Comments are great, but I think it's more about just finding ways to directly connect with your neighbors and then talking about the issues and using journalism as sort of a tool Mm. to keep those conversations educated and at least in context.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is there can be sometimes not enough access to the news or not know enough about what's going on. And on the flip side to that, sometimes too much. I think that there's also this sense of overwhelm, and I think that comes from like the 24-hour news cycle and feeling overwhelmed by the amount of things that we're expected to know or pay attention to. And I pay attention to probably a lot more than most people do just because I'm super locally oriented and I pay attention to a lot of local media. But even I feel like completely behind on so much that's going on. I mean, I don't know that there's really a question there, but it's just there's a frustration with... Never feeling like you're doing enough to know what's going on in town. I definitely feel, even taking a step back just as like
1: a citizen of the world, you know, mm-hmm. where things certainly felt very overwhelming during the pandemic and during all the societal strife that brought, including the political strife and violence, mm-hmm. that was a really difficult time. And and then you factor on things like climate change and inequality <laughs> yeah. and these like really huge world problems yeah. that it's like, what do you how do you even fix that? And I agree that it can feel overwhelming at times, Mm -hmm. especially when presented with the various climate disasters that have just occurred in the last couple of months. And I hear this too from people where it says, I don't do news. It's too depressing. Mm -hmm. I can't, it's just too much. And I completely understand that. I do think though, that positive change, making effective change in the world has to start at the local level. And It's good that we're all aware of the global problems that we all face on a societal level or environmental level. But those are problems that will only be fixed over time if we all understand how we can directly affect our own neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. And that requires us to be aware and vigilant and educated about What's going on just down the street at that city hall building or in their local park or, you know, eventually when people have families or whatever, like at their school or in the local business community and what's actually happening with Midtown or closures down in South Reno or why aren't there enough parks up in the North Valleys, for example. I mean, like those are questions that I think are more like that's where positive change can happen. Like I brought up that cycling route example where Mm -hmm. would having a better cycling system in Reno do more for... People's health? Would it help reduce emissions over time if it was a more efficient system? You know, mm. all this thing sort of adds up in the aggregate, but it, it, it requires people to take an active interest in what's happening in their backyard, not just in the global sense of things. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I often say I got rid of Twitter, whatever X now. <laughs> I mean, I just, it's just too, I mean, I'll, I'll do it for occasional, like, like to, share news about the station or professional news or things like that. But it it got so overwhelming Mm -hmm. to be inundated all the time with political rhetoric and negative news and things that you're just like, I don't know why I need to make this my problem right now.
0: Yeah. I, I yeah. Yeah. I would say that as a recommendation to people who feel overwhelmed by all of the news, the entire like global national level is if you're gonna be investing a lot of your time and energy and worrying about what's happening in the news. You can choose to invest that locally, and that gives you a good excuse to not have to pay as much attention to the. And I know we should be paying attention to as much as we can or whatever, but it is nice to be like, oh, I don't really pay that much attention to what's happening in this really heated national conversation right now because I'm more invested in what's happening locally. I think it's a nice justification for opting out of the daily discourse to be able to say, oh, I'm opting out of that daily discourse because... I'm more involved in what's happening locally. So that's my tip for people who feel overwhelmed by national news. Just turn that off and turn on the local news. You'll probably still be frustrated by a lot of stuff, but it's probably better impact there and probably better for your mental health, I think, not to be inundated with all of the tragedies of the entire planet all of the time. I agree. Yeah. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about KUNR, about local journalism, about your work here in town? I, I Like I said,
1: it's our 60th anniversary. Uh, this, this October, we'll have some events coming up that people can come check out if they'd like. We'll have Domenico Montanaro. He's NPR's political editor, correspondent in town on October 10th as part of our 60th anniversary celebration. So we'll have an event there at the Reno Little Theater that night. We're just continuing just to do the good work that that we can. Of course, we're always looking for financial support, for help, for donations, volunteers. We'll be at... Various events too. If you want to just come over and say hi, we'll be at the Milk and Honey Festival uh, in September. We'll be at the Fiesta on Wells next month as well. We'll be at the Day of the Dead event at the end of October. And I'm probably missing a couple already. And we'll also have, I I should also uh, pitch, we'll have a salon on local journalism at Sundance Bookstore on California on October 25th. Um, So we'll have some other local media types there to talk about what we're talking about right now. But We're going to focus on how technology has shifted local journalism over time, Mm -hmm. not just from the advent of TV, but now like the algorithm and now generative AI. Oh, yeah. And how will that affect journalism in the long run? Yeah,
0: that's a whole nother story. I won't get into this one right now, but I saw a example of a local, it was like a high school sports story that was written by an AI. And it sounds horrible. It's got like weird grammar things, but it's- I just saw that. Yeah. I just saw that this morning. It's strange, but it's like highly localized and it's talking about what the scores were at halftime, but then it's got weird- grammar usage that doesn't make sense because it's just come straight from the AI machine into the like fakely localized website so that will be very weird too when it's not just reporters are reduced like the machines and the algorithms providing news very weird whole nother topic for that
1: one I think it's like an uncanny valley situation though people will just recognize like
0: the robot journalism is that's not quite human it Mm -hmm. freaks me out another benefit of voice although (laughs) AI is gonna can do that too now
1: I I just heard a song They, they it was an AI generated song that it mixed oh what was it it was like tupac and i forget the other artist but it was a totally ai generated Mm -hmm. the lyrics were written by someone but i think he put it through this program that it made it sound like it was actually tupac and he was uh dmx and tupac both Uh, rappers who were no longer with us and coming out with this new song that legitimately sounded like yeah. it if if you didn't tell me that I mean without knowing that like well they've been dead for like, <laughs> right for you know some time that that sounds like that was actually recorded yeah yeah more,
0: more weird stuff coming down the line for it's sure so in weird, the media man. world yeah awesome thank you for coming on the podcast it's good to have you on the show I've done a couple episodes related to local media Bob Conrad from This Is Reno was actually the very first guest on Renoites uh-huh. so it's fun now over hundred episodes later to come back for a whole nother episode about local media things have changed a little bit in the last few years. And it's nice to be able to have you on the show to talk about what's happening here uh, in our media world. Well, Connor, thank you so much. I really appreciate the uh, chat. I I had fun. Thanks. Hey, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, Brian Dugan. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episodes of Renoites, or you just want to support the show in general, or you love local media, any reason, you don't even need a reason. Let people know about the show. I've been working on the show a couple of years and it's really great having so many amazing guests. I've met so many new people. I meet new listeners all the time, but I also have found at the farmer's market meeting so many people who have no idea that there's a local podcast at all about Reno. You can help me with that. Help spread the word about the show. Share episodes on social media. I think one of the best ways to learn about the show is when a friend recommends an episode. So share episodes on social media. I post on Facebook and Instagram when I have new episodes out. And I really appreciate your support. It really makes a huge difference. Listener support and word of mouth is basically essential for a podcast, especially one like this that's so locally oriented. So I appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you next week. We've got a whole new season on the way.